Pearl Church exists to express a sacred story and to extend a common table that animate life by love. A primary expression of our sacred story is the weekly sermon. If our sermons inspire you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully, would you consider supporting our work? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story. God, in your kind mercy, you overturn injustice. May we participate in your ways, even when you seem absent. Amen. You may be seated. This summer, in ordinary time, we are in a series about the five scrolls. Uh, In Hebrew, megaloth is a Hebrew word that refers to the five scrolls, which were read in synagogues on five annual Jewish holidays throughout the Jewish calendar. Song of Songs, read during Passover. Ruth, read during Pentecost. Esther, during Purim. Lamentations during the Ninth of Ab, and Ecclesiastes during the Feast of Booths. Uh, It's generally understood by scholars that a a shift in the observances of Israel's festivals took place when these localized agricultural celebrations were transformed into national celebrations. And that required a pilgrimage for everyone to come together in the central sanctuary. And this move toward a theological rendering of the year was an effort to encourage an ordering of time that reflected Israel's loss of monarchy, its experience of exile in Babylon, and the people gathered together were to find motivation and direction for continuing their lives in faith, even in light of all these losses, and to orient their lives in the words of Scripture and the deeds of God. Similarly, as we meet together, Throughout this Christian season of ordinary time, we intend to learn from these five scrolls in order to remember who we are, to find motivation and direction for continuing our lives of faith, and to orient our lives in the words of Scripture and the deeds of God. Now, as we approach these texts from Scripture, it's crucial for us to remember that when the Hebrew scriptures and the New Testament were originally written and edited and placed together into the books as we have them today, these communities were experiencing oppression, marginalization, and injustice. Both the Jewish community and the early Christian communities were under threat from powerful empires. Uh, For the Jews, from the Babylonian exile onward, the Jewish people were always under a series of empires and often subjected to extreme pressure to assimilate to the culture and religion of their oppressors. Later, when the early Christian churches were being founded and the letters and the gospels that we have were being composed and compiled, the church was routinely facing intense persecution from Rome and the Jewish communities both. Uh, that, that they had left. But what happens when Christianity becomes the empire and then reads its own text? 
It's one thing to read a text that's calling for the overthrow of enemies or claiming that God is on your side when you are the powerless and the marginalized. But it means something quite different to read and claim those texts when you are the one with the power. That yields a very different meaning. Uh, for those of you who are here during last season of Epiphany, last February, March, uh, we had a series, Voices from the Wilderness, and you may recall we looked at Korean Minjung theology. Uh, Minjung is a term that refers to whoever is at this moment being oppressed, and it's a movable term, because if the oppressed and powerless gain power and become oppressors, then the term Minjung just slides right on over to whoever is now being oppressed. Minjung are the oppressed, and Jesus is always with whoever is now being marginalized. Esther, which we'll look at today, is a text for a community on the margins, and Purim is a feast for community on the margins. Today we're going to begin by looking at this feast and its story, and then we'll take note of some overturnings uh, that are suggested by this text. So, uh, Purim and the book of Esther are connected even more tightly together than the other texts we've looked at so far, Song of Songs and Passover, Ruth and Pentecost, because the book of Ex Esther exists to explain and enlighten why we celebrate Purim, and Purim exists to celebrate the events of the book of Esther. They're, they've always been tightly tied together. Uh, Purim falls in February or March, and is a two-day festival of great celebration, and in the words of one Bible dictionary I looked at, condoned excess. I like that. Condoned excess. In other words, Purim is a time for family, frivolity, play, eating, and a lot of drinking. Uh, so then, well, wh where did this come from? The story. Okay, we begin in the Persian city of Susa, under the reign of King Ahasuerus, uh, which is known to history as Xerxes, who was the great enemy of the Greeks around 486 to 465 BC. And this story is situated at the, the greatest height of the Persian Empire. Um, you may recall that the Jews were uh, finally exiled from Jerusalem by the Babylonians, and then the Babylonian Empire was overtaken by the Persian Empire, which would later be overtaken by the Greeks and then the Romans, just a, a big turning wheel of empires. Uh, but at the height of the Persian Empire, Susa was the pleasure palace for the king. It wasn't necessarily the, the, the capital of the Persian Empire, but it was where the king would go to celebrate and live lavishly with his courtiers and his nobles. And that's where we find them at the beginning of the book in 180 days of feasting, uh, which sounds really nice. I, I would like to go somewhere where someone just provided me endless food for 180 days. That would be really a good break. Uh, so the king, quite drunk, calls on his wife, his queen Vashti, to come and to display her beauty before all of his people. And she, understandably, refuses to come. And Xerxes is enraged and banishes Vashti from his court and sends throughout all the empire to find candidates to replace Vashti as his queen. And we need to note here that really what this amounts to is sexual slavery, because what happens is his people go through all the empire and find beautiful young women and remove them from their homes, take them to his harem, and each night one of them is forced to come to him in his chambers until he finds someone who's pretty enough for him. 
Uh, it's a pretty terrible story. So one of the women brought to Xerxes is named Hadassah or Esther, a young Jewish woman who was orphaned and brought up by her cousin Mordecai in the Jewish community in Susa. And as the story goes, when Esther is brought into Xerxes, he loves her most of all the women and makes Esther queen in Vashti's place. But Esther does not at this time make it known that she is a Jew. Mordecai, her cousin who raised her, continues to visit with Esther daily, going to the palace gates and meeting with her. And while waiting for her one day, uh, Mordecai overhears two of the king's eunuchs plotting to assassinate Xerxes. And he tells Esther, and she goes and she warns the, queen, the king, and uh, the plot is foiled and the two men are executed. That'll become important later, but for now, we move some time forward in the story, and we encounter for the first time the villain Haman. Now, uh, traditionally, when, during Purim, when the book of Esther is read, any time the villain Haman is named, all the people who are listening boo. So let's try that, and I'd like to encourage that throughout this reading. It's going to be very distracting and wonderful. Okay, the villain Haman. Yeah, there we go. We love it. Uh, he has been raised to be the vizier of the kingdom, and the king orders that all should bow in Haman's presence. Mm -hmm. But uh, one day at the king's gate, he sees that Mordecai, who's Jewish, will not bow because he's a Jew. Uh, you may recall the book of Daniel. We have the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Uh, it's the same, same concept here. So this enrages Haman, who vows to destroy the Jews. Uh, and so he casts lots. Uh, the word for lots is Purim. That's where we get the name of the feast. So he casts lots to determine a day on which he will destroy the Jewish people. And it lands on the 13th of Adar. And so Haman... Boo goes to the king and tells him that there is a dangerous people who are refusing to keep the king's laws and they're scattered among the kingdom and they must be destroyed. And so Xerxes callously agrees. Uh, and so, as we heard in our reading this morning, Haman writes to all the provinces of the Persian Empire, this is fun, uh, giving orders to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate the Jews, young and old, young and wi uh, women and children in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month. Well, Mordecai hears of this plot. And so he goes to Esther to beg her to intercede with the king on behalf of her people. But Esther points out rightly that by the law, if anyone approaches the king without first being summoned and he doesn't extend a scepter of welcome to them, uh, they will be executed. And she points out the king hasn't called her for over a month at this point. She's, she seems to be on the outs with the king. Uh, and so Mordecai speaks some of the most memorable words in this whole story. Do not think that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. Esther agrees, saying simply, if I perish, I perish. And so, uh, after fasting, uh, Esther approaches the king, and she is welcomed. He extends the scepter of welcome to her, and her life being spared, she asks the king to come the next day to a banquet, which she will prepare for the king and for Haman. <laughs> Meanwhile, 
While being unable to sleep that night, the king happens upon a record of the plot to kill him. Remember way back in the story, there was those two people who wanted to kill him. Well, he comes across a record of this uh, story. This is not the only time in the scriptures where uh, a king comes across a record of something that happened earlier, and he has no memory of that event. So I, I don't know what that means about kings at the time, but no idea. And he, he asks, was this Mordecai who, uh, who found out this plot, was he ever rewarded? And his attendants say, no, nothing was ever done for him. So thinking about this, uh, Xerxes is pondering when Haman walks into the room and he's feeling really good about himself because he is not only about to execute his plot to kill all of the Jews, but he's going to see that Mordecai particularly is uh, killed. And so uh, he walks in and the king asks him, what should be done for someone who's done great service for the king? Well, Haman naturally thinks that the king's talking about himself. And so he says, oh, well, you should lavish wealth and give them power. And he goes on and on and on about all the things that should be done. And the king says, good idea. Go get Mordecai and give him all of that. And so Haman is humil humiliated. And not only does he then have to go and reward and exalt the man that he hates, but that night at Esther's banquet, she reveals that she is a Jew and that Haman, his plot against all the Jews and his claims against them are false. The king is enraged. He orders that the, the plot to kill the Jews be, be stopped and he has Haman executed. Yay, <laughs> exactly. So the reversal complete, the book tells us that this is why the Jews celebrate Purim each year, to remember when they were in such danger, but saved through the courageous action of Esther and Mordecai on their behalf. Such is the joy of Purim that the Talmud teaches that on this feast day, one should drink enough so that they cannot tell the difference between blessed be Mordecai and cursed be Haman. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, that's a lot of drinking. So... Esther is a wonderful story. I encourage you to read it. It's a short read. It's a fun story. It has a lot of plot lines. Uh, and the way it's written is, is really engaging. But today I want to draw our attention to three observations, uh, which each give us opportunity for a reversal. Esther is a book of reversal where the nefarious plot of the villain backfires and leads to the good of the vulnerable. Even so, I think Esther can inspire some reversals for us today on behalf of the marginalized. First, we should observe how the book of Esther and its hero have been treated in Christian history as a book which centers on the courage of a woman, a woman who employs her beauty and sexuality as well as her intelligence and her courage to save her people. Well, this book has not received extremely warm reception. Several times in church history, from the formation of the original canon of the Bible all the way to the Reformation, voices have argued that Esther has no place in the Bible at all. But even though the book has survived, the character of Esther has faced a lot of marginalization as well. First, as a woman, her story is told a lot less than the male-centric stories of other books. And even when it is told, Esther is frequently turned into a metaphor. Uh, often, when, when women do finally show up in the biblical narrative, you may have noticed this, when women show up, scholars and pastors tend to turn them into metaphors for concepts rather than real people. 
um, Eugene Peterson, who is a pastor that I have found a, very helpful. I, I've loved a lot of his writing. Uh, he does this. Uh, Peterson notes that her original name, Hadassah, means bride, and so says she's just a representation of the church. Meanwhile, he says that Mordecai is the real hero of the story. Of course, the man is. And that Esther is morally dubious because she uses her sexuality to influence the king. I think we must overturn the perpetual sidelining of women's voices from Christian history and Christian communities. And one way to do that is to celebrate the courageous women who give themselves for their communities. Amen. If we do not intentionally set out to do this, then just by default, we're going to only celebrate male lives and male voices. And in that vein, maybe, here's one thought, maybe we should reconsider our Protestant stance toward Mary. Uh, Mary has had a lot of feasts and celebrations that the Protestant church has stripped away, and that's left us with a basically entirely male church calendar. I think we must, with intentionality, whether it's Esther or Mary or any of the many other saints in the church, uh, set out to celebrate the lives of courageous and subversive women in Bible and church history. So that's one thing. Second observation. I want to observe something in this story which happens constantly. The one who is the oppressor claims to be victimized by the one they are actually oppressing. I'll say that again. The one who is the oppressor claims to be victimized by the one that they are actually oppressing. So in the story, Haman comes to the king with a story of how the Jews are subversive and dangerous. But of course they're not. They're just a marginal community who is vulnerable and powerless in this empire. Now this is far, far from the only time in history that various empires Persian, Greek, Roman, Catholic, Protestant, have declared that the Jewish people specifically are a threat. And these empires, these oppressors, have pretended to be the victims of the ones that they are oppressing. Well, we see similar dynamics today in America. Uh, white people continue to perpetuate the idea that people of color, especially black people, are dangerous or frightening. In a number of different ways, this, this idea just continues to be perpetuated. Or maybe that they are taking our jobs when we make moves for equity in hiring, or etc. When by all accounts, it is the white people who have been the aggressors. It is the white people who have the power to be dangerous and harmful. And it is the white people who have taken all the opportunities and wealth for hundreds and hundreds of years. The American church, too, has taken on a rhetoric of culture war and regularly portrays itself as being the aggrieved and the oppressed, claiming that Christianity is persecuted in this country, and then turns on women, the LGBTQIA community, those of other faiths, saying that it is the church and not those marginalized persons who are being persecuted. Remember what we said at the beginning. The Bible was written to a truly oppressed and vulnerable people on the margins. And so when a powerful, politically powerful church takes that book and uses its language as a metaphor for itself, this leads to really terrible distortions. And it has all throughout church history. 
So here's another invitation of Esther and Purim to overturning. By celebrating a feast which focuses on the liberation of the truly oppressed from the play-acting aggressor, we can develop keen eyes to look for this dynamic happening in our world today. We can begin to ask critically, in this situation, who actually has power? Who actually is at risk? Who is really in danger? For the way of Jesus is to join the oppressed, whoever they are. Finally, I want to observe the curious fact about Esther that God is mentioned nowhere in the book of Esther. There's no reference to God in the entire book. The closest we come is in Mordecai's speech in chapter 4 when he says, uh, if you keep silence, Esther, at such a time as this, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another quarter. Uh, but who knows, perhaps you have come to royal dignity for just such a time as this. And you can hear maybe in the echoes of that, between the lines, that Mordecai probably thinks that God is the one who will raise up deliverance and that God is the one who has moved Esther into uh, the place. But that's not stated outright. And I think because of that, Esther is a story which feels much more like the way you and I encounter the world than a lot of the Bible, right? There's no burning bush. There's no voice trumpeting from the heavens. Esther is not told by an angel that she's going to succeed in her attempt to save her people or be protected, protected from the king's wrath. There's no certainties. There's only people who believe the way of God is for protection for the vulnerable and the marginalized, and they act without any guarantees. And so Esther says, if I perish, I perish. But this is the right thing to do. The people of God in the story do not have certainty of precisely who will rescue them or how they'll be rescued, but they act trusting that the way of God is toward rescue. And so they act in alignment with that way of justice. Will it be them who succeeds? Maybe, maybe not. But someone someday will succeed in overturning injustice, they believe. And so here too for us is an overturning an overturning of our need for certainty of success before we act. Rather than waiting to know if we are going to reach the end of the struggle for peace and equity, this story and this feast remind us that the movement for justice and the way of Christ are not worth pursuing because we know we are going to succeed. They're worthwhile because they are true. We may have a dream for equity that we never get to live to see, but Esther encourages trust that the way of God will, in the end, succeed, and that loyalty to God's way is never foolish. So the presence of the book of Esther in our sacred story is an encouragement toward overturning. This woman's story calls us to overturn the marginalization of women in our history and consciousness, it calls us to intentionally seek ways to listen to women's voices, to tell women's stories, to celebrate the courageous contributions of women at every level of our faith and society. The story of Esther also calls us to critically call out and refuse narratives told by oppressors claiming that they are the victims, even when it's the church who is the aggressor that is claiming to be the victim. We're called to do the work of critically assessing who has power, who has privilege, who is actually vulnerable, and to see that the vulnerable are protected. 
even when that means we are protecting them from our own power and privilege by dismantling it. And finally, the story of Esther calls us to overturn in our own lives the need for certainty before we will move to seek out justice. Even when we can't see God, when we have no assurances that our work for the way of Jesus could make any difference, in fact, right where we have every reason to believe that the way of Jesus is impractical and therefore we're tempted to abandon it in favor of power and control and empire, right there, the story of Esther calls us to remember the way of Jesus is good even if we have no idea how it will work. Whether it works in our lifetime or not, our sacred story assures us that bit by bit, through the lives of people without certainties but with courage and hope, our world is being transformed toward God's dream of a world at peace. May it be so. And may we join in the way of Jesus in such a moment as this for which we have been divinely prepared. Let's pray. God, in your kind mercy, you overturn injustice. May we participate in your ways even when you seem absent. that this sermon inspired you to ponder the sacred, to consider the mystery and love of God, and to live bountifully. If you don't already support our work, will you begin today? You can donate easily and securely at our website, pearlchurch.org, or follow the link in the podcast notes. Thank you for partnering with us in expressing this sacred story.